Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 to 35. And when the time came for their purification, that is, Mary and Joseph, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So throughout uh, the month of December, the Christmas season, we've been looking at the gospel writer Luke's Christmas playlist. Luke begins his gospel with four songs that, uh, that are sung in the run-up to the birth of Jesus we looked first at the song of Mary, Jesus' mother, then the song of Zechariah, and then the angel's song uh, on, on Christmas morning. And now we've come to the last song, which might be the, the least well-known of the four songs of Luke's gospel, the song of Simeon. And as we'll see in a moment, this song actually harmonizes with the three songs that came before it, kind of tying all the themes and threads together, uh, much like uh, the outro of a Broadway of, of a Broadway show where the, the last song kind of summarizes the whole, the whole, the whole play together. Uh, but what we'll see is immediately after this song is over, Simeon injects a little bit of tension in this story. Simeon has sung about what Jesus has come to do. He's come to uh, lift up the lowly and cast down the proud and to bring peace and joy to all men. But then Simeon injects this tension by saying that Jesus is going to be the one who causes uh, conflict in the lives of people. Uh, he's going to cause some to, to rise and others to fall. And, and he says a sword is going to pierce Mary's soul also. So what is this about? How can the birth of Jesus be one of joy and peace and glory, but also one of strife and division and conflict? Uh, what, what I want to suggest this morning is that we need to understand both. We need to understand the joy and the glory, as well as the, the strife and the conflict, if we're going to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. The songs of Christmas have, have talked about what Jesus has come to do, but in this tension that Simeon injects into his conversation with Mary, he starts to introduce how Jesus is going to do that, how Jesus is going to bring this salvation, that he's going to bring it through conflict. And so in our time together, I want us to consider two things. Uh, I want us to consider how Jesus came to divide and then how Jesus came to unite. So how Jesus came to divide and then how Jesus came to unite. So let's first think about how Jesus came to divide. Well, in, in keeping with the Jewish customs, Mary and Joseph bring their baby boy to the temple. 
to present him to the Lord. And as they walk into the temple courts, we meet Simeon. Uh, we don't know much about Simeon, and after this encounter, we'll actually never meet him again. But what we do need to know about Simeon, Luke tells us. Simeon was this righteous person. He was holy and devout. And, and, and we read that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for, for God to keep his promises, the promises to make all things new, the promise to restore the, the kingdom of Israel by, by sending the promised deliverer king who's going to set everything to right, who's going to bring about peace and justice and, and triumph for the people of God. And on top of all of these other promises, he's holding on to a unique promise that, that he would not see death until he met the Lord's Christ, the one in whom all of those other promises are bound up. And so he, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And in this uh, particular instance, the day has come. He, he sees from across the temple this young couple walk in, this, this, young, uh, this young poor couple from the looks of it, because the husband has two turtle doves in, in his hands, which is the, the offering that only the poorest people in Israel could offer. The husband has, has the offering in his arms, and the mother has a, a newborn baby in hers. And you can imagine Simeon seeing this from across the way and, and, and making a beeline towards the new family, picking up his pace as he goes, and he gets to the new, to the new family, and he, and he does every new mom's nightmare. He, a complete stranger comes and, and picks up the baby and holds him in his arms. And holding this newborn baby... Simeon says, God, I'm ready to die. You can let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your deliverer, the, the one in whom you're going to keep all the promises that you've made to your people. But Jesus' work to deliver the world, Simeon says, comes through division. Simeon told Mary that Jesus was born not only to deliver, but to divide not only to bring peace, but to bring conflict. And, and while this seems counterintuitive, it, it's absolutely necessary for us to, to grasp that Jesus brings about unity and salvation through division, that he brings us together by creating conflict in our souls. And Jesus creates conflict in two ways. He creates conflict uh, between people, and he creates conflict uh, within, uh, within us. So he, he creates conflict within people, and he creates conflict within us. And, and Jesus creates division among people because he is this polarizing figure. In fact, Jesus came to be a, a polarizing figure. He, he didn't come to be somebody that, that people are indifferent to. He, he didn't come to be somebody who people have uh, lukewarm feelings about. He came to divide. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus records these words. He says, don't, do not think that I've come to this world to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to, be, to bring peace, but division. And in Luke's gospel, he says, I, I've come to set fire to the earth. So what is Jesus getting at when he, when he says these bold things? He didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring division. Well, Jesus came to be this polarizing figure, and he's polarizing in two ways. He's polarizing by the audacity of his claims and, and by the attractiveness of his life. So Jesus is polarizing because of the, of the audacity of his claims. He, he makes some pretty audacious claims about himself, and he makes pretty audacious demands of other people. And, and, as we'll, and we'll see this as we walk through Luke's gospel in the new year, that there's this instance where Jesus is talking with a rich young ruler, and Jesus tells this person that uh, he is more important than this man's wealth, and so he needs to sell everything he has and come and follow Jesus. He says in another part of, of, um, of the gospel that he says, if you don't hate your, your, your father or your mother or your brother or sister, uh, and, and love me more than them, you're not worthy of me. You, you can't follow me. 
Uh, and then he even has the audacity to, to, uh, while, while Jesus is dying on the cross to look to the criminal next to him and say, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Uh, what kind of person says those kinds of things? Uh, it, it would, it, it would be, uh, it'd be completely, uh, it, it's just no one, no one has said things like this. Uh, if, if, imagine if somebody came up to you uh, either on campus or at Hilldale and said that uh, you belong to me. In fact, every thought and word and action that you ever have must be thought and, and said and done with reference to me. What, how would you respond to that person if they came up to you on the street? Well, you, you'd either call them insane and, and crazy and write them off, or you'd really have to look into it and, and accept what they're saying. And, and these are the kinds of claims that Jesus is making. He, 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 he claims to be the, the person who should be at the center of the universe, the center of your life and my life. And before you write Jesus off as crazy, uh, you have to consider his life, the, the attractiveness of his life. Uh, because Jesus made some outlandish claims, but he also lived the most beautiful, selfless, sacrificial, compelling life that's ever been lived. He, he went to the people that society had written off and he restored their dignity. He would go to the people that, that, that us and our society are quick to overlook and ignore. He, he taught beautiful teachings that endure even to this day. And, and when you take the Venn diagram of people, uh, one circle are the, are the circle of people who claim to be God, and then the other circle is the people who've lived the beautiful life, and you put those two together, you're only going to find Jesus' name in the center. Because when you look at the circle of people who live beautiful lives, they don't claim to be God. They, they, don't, they don't claim to be the center of reality. Uh, but if you look at the other circle, the people who claim to be God, they often don't live lives that you want to imitate or emulate. But when you look at Jesus, you see both. You see somebody who made audacious claims about the world and about reality and about you, and then you see somebody who lived the most beautiful life that's ever been lived. And, and these things coexist in the same person in a way that doesn't in, 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 all, in all of human history. And so you have the, the polarizing Jesus standing before you. And uh, and so, do you see how polarizing Jesus is this morning? How, how he isn't a person that, that, that we're supposed to be indifferent to or lukewarm about? And so, if you're here this morning, and, and if you feel indifferent to Jesus, uh, maybe you think he was just a good teacher, um, but he was just a man of his times, uh, or, or if you think that he had some, some good things to say, but he's really you know, out of step with, with, uh, with the culture or anything like that, that he's a, he's a good person, but he doesn't really confront or challenge you in any meaningful way, then can I suggest to you that maybe the Jesus that you're thinking of isn't the Jesus of Scripture. It's a Jesus of your imagination. It's a Jesus that you have tweaked and, and, and tailored and customized uh, to, to, be, uh, to be a non-threatening, uh, a not, an, an unimportant Jesus, uh, really a Jesus of your own creation, a Jesus that you've domesticated and created, not the Jesus, uh, not, not the God of Scripture, not, not the God of the, uh, who, who made the world and everything in it. It's a Jesus of your imagination. You see, Jesus, he causes division between people. You either have to take him or leave him, and there's no in-between. And, and do you see how when, Jesus, uh, when this Jesus confronts you, how it creates a tension inside yourself? Because Jesus claims to be the, the center of reality, uh, the, the Christ, uh, the most important figure in past, present, and future, that, that he's making a claim that, that because he is the most important, that means you are not. That there is one God of the world, and you're not him. That there is one person who controls the scope of history, 
and it's not you. And so do you see how the, how the conflict has, be, has moved onto our turf into those terms? Uh, that, that, that deep down, all of us believe that we're the masters of our lives, that we're the captains of our fate, the masters of our soul, uh, that, that we want to uh, control uh, our, our career trajectory, we want to control our relationships, we want to uh, control our family in such a way that they grow up to be uh, respectable citizens, good people. But Jesus comes and says, you are not the one that's in control. Uh, you, you have the illusion of control because you have wealth and security. You have your needs, uh, your immediate needs are being met. You have the illusion in the appearance of control, but really none of those things uh, are stable. None of those things will give you the peace and comfort and security that you're truly looking for. And so Jesus comes to us and, and says, you have to choose now. You're either going to live life on your own, which has this temporary benefit but will leave you empty, or you can follow me. And, and the road uh, of following Jesus is difficult. It, it's, it's, a, it's a road of daily self-denial and, and in some ways a death. But Jesus says it's the way that leads to life. And so Jesus comes to you and says, are you going to follow me? And, and it's in this moment that we experience the conflict of repentance, the conflict, the, the sting of repentance. And repentance is, as one pastor puts it, like antiseptic. Uh, you know, when you, when you ever have a wound or a cut, you pour antiseptic on the wound, and at first it stings, but it stings so that it can heal, so that it takes away what's, what's dead so that uh, what's, what remains can live and grow. And the sting of repentance comes when we admit that we're not God, that we're not the ones who are in control of the world, not even in control of our own lives. And more than that, uh, repentance goes, goes deeper. It admits that our deepest problem in the world uh, that our deepest problems doesn't come from a lack of education or lack of, or lack of resources or lack of opportunity. The deepest problems in the world actually come from within, from within our, within our own hearts, that we're more selfish and sinful and myopic than we dare to admit, and, and that, that there's something inside of us that we cannot fix on our own. The sting of repentance is us owning up to the fact that we're far from who we want to be and far from who God desires us to be. But the healing comes when we look at Jesus. See, Jesus, eight weeks old, came into the temple and was, and was received with joy and jubilation and gladness. But Jesus returns to that temple about 30 years later. And you know what he experiences when he goes into that temple? He experiences opposition. He experiences conflict. He, he experiences the, the opposition of the religious leaders who view Jesus as a threat that needs to be dealt with. And so Jesus is... Uh, is is convicted of trumped-up charges by, by the religious leaders, and he's, and he's put on a cross to die. He experiences his own body being pierced uh, on the cross so that we might experience healing. See, in this interaction between Simeon and Mary, the cross, the shadow of the cross looms in the background. Jesus is going to bring peace through division because he is going to be torn apart so that we could be made whole. He, he's going to experience... Uh, the, the hatred of the world so that we can experience the fullness of the love of God. See, Jesus was broken so that we would be united and made whole in him. And, and we experience repentance when we see what, the, what lengths God went to for us to be made right with him. When we see Jesus torn apart so that we could be brought together, we realize that our sin isn't just breaking God's rules, it's breaking God's heart. That when we see God's heart on display in Jesus, we we, we have the power in that to live differently, to, to, to live lives that are pleasing to him. 
See, Jesus came to divide people, but he didn't come just to divide people. He, he came to divide in order to unite. So Jesus came to unite. And although Simeon was absent from the other three songs that Jesus sung, Simeon's song actually summarizes them all, if you look at the, 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 the song again. See, Jesus has come to fulfill God's word. That's, that phrase, according to scripture, means God, uh, Jesus came to save, to bring light and glory for the people of God. But in talking about what Jesus, the deliverer, has come to do, Simeon expands on the previous songs in one important way. While, while the previous songs from, from Mary to Zechariah to the angels was about what God was going to do for the people of God, the people of Israel, Simeon goes a step further and says that what Jesus has come to be, Jesus has come not just to be a deliverer for the people of God, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, he's come to be a light for the Gentiles as well. He's come to be the savior of the whole world. And one of the major themes of Luke's work in, in the Gospel of Luke and in the, in the second book he wrote, the book of Acts, this global scope of Jesus' mission uh, that the gospel goes out to everyone, regardless of ethnicity and income, background and ability. Uh, it's, it's a major theme in Luke's work. And this deliverance, uh, Luke, Luke shows us, comes to the most unlikely of people. It comes uh, to the people that we're quick to overlook or, or push to the margins, uh, the poor, the blind, the chronically ill, the afflicted, the unpopular, those with bad reputations. Luke shows us that Jesus brings deliverance to the people that we would be reluctant to offer it to, to criminals, to religious and social outcasts, to people who are oppressed and exploited by others. Luke is telling us that this good news, that this deliverance is for everyone. It's for everyone. And, and do we truly believe that? Do we truly believe that this morning? And as we look over the scope of history, do you know that's exactly what we see? We see salvation coming to all people. You see, one of the unique things about Christianity, maybe this might be the most surprising, is that Christianity is the most diverse movement in human history. It's the most diverse movement in human history. Back in 2020, uh, the World Christian Encyclopedia, based in Edinburgh, published uh, some findings in an article called The World is 100 Christians. So in this article, it said that if you took the world's uh, roughly 3 billion Christians and you just represented them as 100 people, what you would find is that over half, around, like 65 out of 100, live outside of westernized countries. Uh, only 10 speak English, 90, speak, uh, 90 people speak languages that aren't, that aren't English. Um, this, you know, for us first world problem folks, 47 of the world's 100 Christians don't have internet access. Um, unlike other global religions where the majority of adherents still live in the area where religion be, where the religion began for instance the majority of the world's hindus still live in india the majority of the world's muslims still live in saudi arabia and the middle east did you know that the global center of christianity has shifted multiple times it, it started in the middle east and then it shifted to uh to europe and then it shifted to north america and now it, it, in our day it's shifted to the global south in africa sub-saharan africa china south america Southern Hemisphere. Uh, so what we're what we're seeing is that the gospel is is truly a diverse movement, and the only way that it can, that can that that we can account for why Christianity is such a diverse global movement is because it has a savior who is a savior for the world, not just a particular group of people, not just for uh, not just for the the people who have it all together, but it's a it's a savior for the world. There was this professor at Yale Divinity School named Lamin, Lamin Sine, and he wrote this book called Whose Religion is Christianity? And he talks about the reason why Christianity is such, this, such a diverse global movement is because it's, it's, a, it's, a, 
because Christianity is the only faith that actually honors and enters into every culture and transforms every culture. He says, when, he says if you think about uh, Western culture, for instance, Western culture says you have, to, you have to be like us before you can be yourself. It says it, it looks at people with other cultures um, from different ethnicities, and it says those things are great, and you can, you can keep those things as, as ornaments, uh, as things that, that are unique to your identity, but you need to think about, you, you, need, you need to fall in line with the same uh, thoughts and beliefs that we have as Western people. Um, you know, so Sine gives the example of going to an African, to, to go, going to an African tribe uh, that believes in the power of evil spirits, and it says, uh, "We love, we love your culture. We love your, we love your dances. We love your rituals. Uh, but in order for you uh, to be truly enlightened, you have to do away with this belief in evil spirits. You have to believe uh, in only what you can see, and touch, and feel, uh, and then, uh, and then you can you can maintain your culture." But Lam- what Laman Sine says is that. Christianity uh, creates remade Africans, not remade Europeans. So Christianity will enter into an African, African culture and say, yes, uh, a belief in evil spirits is real because the Bible talks about a world that, uh, that contains more than what we can see. There is a spiritual realm. There is a spiritual battle going on. But Christianity tells us that there is a savior who has gone into the spiritual realm, who has triumphed over the evil spirits and reigns victoriously over them. And so you can enter into... Uh, the Christian faith, you can enter into a relationship with Jesus and not have to leave your culture behind. You can enter into, enter it, enter into it as the fullness of, hu- of who you are. And Christianity uh, is like that in every single culture. It challenges things about, it, about every single culture, but it doesn't hold up one culture as ultimate. It doesn't hold up one culture as the one that has arrived. That Christianity is this beautiful diamond that helps us um, become our fullest human selves, um, and that we can be a, a, global, a global movement that reflects the diversity of the world that God made. And before I came to Res Pres, I actually served as the missions pastor at my previous church, and I used to tell people that I had the best job in the church because on a daily basis, I got to see what God was doing all around the world. And if you find your faith going stale this morning, if you feel like you're just going through the motions, if you want to reignite the embers of your faith, my encouragement to you uh, is to find some way in the next year to diversify your faith, to find some way to partner with the global church, whether that's the global church that's here in Madison or whether that's the global church uh, on the other side of the world. And my hope is that as Res Pres, that we have a heart for the nations and that we would find ways to partner with our Christian brothers and sisters in Madison and around the world, uh, in that uh, people who are from different countries and cultures and languages and backgrounds, because I believe that the diversity of the global church is actually one of its greatest strengths in the time and place in which we live, that if people can see uh, the beauty of Jew and Gentile, of insider and outsider, finding life in the gospel together, it can be such a powerful witness and testimony to the goodness of Jesus and the glory of God. See, Simeon was able to see that God's work of deliverance is for the whole world, and so should we, that we serve a Savior who, di- who divides, yes, but he divides to unite us in him. Lord, would you, please, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has united your people, that you have brought us together, that you have confronted us in our own pride and selfishness, our own sense of how the world should work. And Lord, we, we pray that you would continue to confront us, continue to humble us, give us the, the resources that we need to repent uh, of our own attempts to be God, uh, of our own attempts uh, to live lives as we see fit, and Lord, to trust you, 
in this new year, that we would follow you with renewed vigor and trust and strength. And God, we pray that you would help our, our community here in Madison to be uh, a church that's for the nations, a church that's for the world, that we would seek to embody this diverse reality of your church, uh, this diverse reality of, of our faith, that you might be glorified and that this world would see that the good news of Jesus really is good news for all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.